Welcome to the Digiday Podcast, another remote edition. Um, I'm joined this week by Josh Schollmeyer. Josh is uh, the founder and editor-in-chief of Mel Magazine, um, which has been going for, I guess, about five years now, Josh? Yeah, this is our fifth year of daily publishing. Okay, and so I describe Mel, and, and I want your take on my description. It's It's sort of trying to figure out what it is to be like a modern man in this in this very fraught era i guess you guys were ahead of all of the me too stuff but um you know difficult time to figure out what what it is to be a man i think the the, the men's publications of of yesteryear and you were at, at playboy so you know this well um you know probably less modern these days so explain the idea overall behind behind mel well, I think a couple of things. One, I always joke that it, it's me really working through some shit, um, which is kind of true of just trying to find my place in a very, as you point out, fraught world. I think when it started, the, the idea was much more quaint, uh, which was, you know, I had come from Playboy where we did, we did a lot of things on, you know, bespoke axes that you could hang in your living room and a lot of kind of consumer, you know, the endless conversations some of my fellow colleagues would have about artisanal gin and it just seemed, uh, frankly, it kind of bored me and it felt pretty out of touch. And I think, you know, I come from a very blue collar working class background. And I think there was a time with my grandfather and even my dad and uncles who looked at that stuff as very aspirational. Um, and I think as time went on, aspirations really changed and became more experiential than they did around certain goods. I also felt that that approach kind of shamed people, you know, if you didn't have the right kind of socks that matched your jacket with the right kind of barber. Somehow you were less of a, you know, well-heeled, sophisticated urbanite. Um, and so I wanted to do something that I felt would speak much more fundamentally to men's lives, especially not just with what was going on with social change, but the fact that like the whole notion of quote unquote adulting and, you know, when do we start to grow up and mature? And, you know, as men in particular are faced with a lot of more fundamental things in life, things you never thought you'd worry about um, around your job, your, you know, a, a, especially given the economic times we've been in the last decade or so. I think mental health mm -hmm. is a super important thing. Um, I didn't see places like men's health and others really taking mental health as seriously as physical health, especially around like, you know, 60 seconds to abs. I was much more interested in trying to holistically um, triangulate my need for like my ambition for a career, my ambition to be a good partner and and father, and my ambition to be something other than the guy who died at his desk or you know a husband or father and somebody who had his own identity and I think that that's a very tough thing to square kind of in any era. I think it's particularly tough now, and I just wanted to sort of investigate. The, the different thinking, the different people that I thought were doing that in intriguing ways that maybe you could take something from. Okay, so and I mean, then this... I think everything changed with me too, you know. <laughs> and right, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to get to that. Um, but so that was the original idea, and I think what you're talking about with with Esquire and GQ and a lot of the sort of traditional men's publications is, I mean, a lot of that's business model driven, right? Correct. I mean, like it's an archetype based on who they could advertise against. Right. So I actually believe right. that that guy never really existed. It was just that they could get style advertisers. They could get auto advertisers. They could get liquor advertisers. They could get studios. So like, I never believed that guy existed. I believe that that guy existed to sell against. Right. So different business model, 
at Mel. I mean, so you hooked up with with Dollar Shave Club with Michael Dubin. Um, explain explain the model there because I think I know originally I was like, oh wow, weird. This is going to be. I remember you know our Digiday alum John McDermott uh, was was an early hire uh, at Mel. No no offense taken. I, I love John, <laughs> um, and I loved some of the work he did there. A lot of the work he did there, but. I was like, oh, wait, you're going to go do sponsor content? Yeah, so everybody told me I was crazy. Uh, you know, I had just come off, you know, a pretty successful, I'd, I'd written a, 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 I'd started this magalog with my friends in Chicago. Uh, one of the articles I'd done there was, you know, Steve James used it for his Ebert documentary, which was shortlisted for an Oscar. I'd been in the, you know, a, a lot of journalism awards. And so, so the idea of me going to a brand, everybody thought I was nuts and crazy and that I was you know, basically pissing away my career and what was I doing? I was very, very, very frustrated with con- um, legacy consumer media. Uh, I felt they weren't going to get it. Uh, they were holding on to every last penny they were going to bring in in the ways that they knew. They didn't, especially on the print side, any print legacy publication, I think that's still true mostly today outside of New York Magazine and The Atlantic. They weren't really that interested in figuring out digital um, they didn't really go at it the correct way. And I was super frustrated. Um, and I was kind of like, fuck it. If anybody's going to get this, it's not going to be somebody from this industry. And, you know, Mike and I mm-hmm. talked early on and we talked for about six months. And he kept saying, I would like to start an Esquire meets Vice. And I told him, well, it's interesting. I'm kind of doing something like that at Playboy. I was doing this Kinja site called Playboy Safe for Work that was, that was really successful. And I think, I think this is a, one yeah. of the first Kinja references, <laughs> yeah. RIP. Yeah, exactly. I, I loved doing that. But um, so I think it worked because, you know, I say this a lot. A lot of brands have approached me about, about now that Mel has been successful about doing something similar for them and blah, 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 blah. And I always said I'm going to start a consulting agency, agency just to tell brands no um, because yeah. this is like... Just draw it out. Just do like a, you yeah. know, you got to <laughs> come in with a 65-slide PowerPoint and then yeah. the last PowerPoint is it's like, just no. no. Instead of the thank you slide, it's just no. Um, yeah. Uh, because I don't think it works for everybody. I think it. this is working for us for a couple reasons. One, there was real white space in the men's lifestyle market. That, that was a lifestyle content market. That was an area that really needed reinvention and to be blown up in the, in the same way that Jezebel and the cut and the women's side of things had been really doing things right for a while. Nobody had been doing anything outside of maybe Deadspin or Grantland, but both of those were more pop culture sports based than sort of any kind of true men's lifestyle publication. So there was a real opportunity there. And I think with Dollar Shave Club, you know, I was there, it's kind of crazy because I never thought I'd be an OG, but I was employing like number 43. You know, I was there when there were only about 400,000 members um, of, the, of the business. And, you know, Mike was really interested in this kind of like content commerce model, but doing it completely differently, which would be more brand-backed publishing. And, and again, there was a real opportunity to fill a need, I think, with a male consumer, a certain kind of male consumer reader. And then I think the way we went about building the publication is it drew from a lot of the same DNA, but it wasn't there just to push. It's never been there to push razors. It's been there to be a thought leader on modern masculinity. So explain how that works, though, because I I think, you know, 
you guys were early on that and that a lot of people are now focused on on bringing content and commerce back together. This isn't, you know, not a new idea. Yeah, 100%. Um, obviously, there's no, we're groundbreaking. How dare you? <laughs> you know. No, <laughs> it's the first time ever. Yeah. But, you know, I think you talked about a brand backed publisher. And I think we're seeing a lot of a lot of instances where you, you see publishing being used as the front end to a DTC model and really and really to sort of combat high customer acquisition costs on on the different platforms. Um, but this is different. I think it's different for a couple of reasons. Like your KPI is not like lowering the CAC uh, for no, dollar I mean, Mike, shave. Mike and I are very different in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, we believe in doing things that are spiritual, right? So it has to come from a place that like we feel first and foremost. And our prevailing notion is that if you create something that that's authentic, that you really give it everything you've got. I mean, Mike's, my KPI in the early days was hire the best people you can and do the best possible work you can, right? And now, five years in, I think we've built, you know, not to sound unhumble, but I, you know, I think we've built a pretty impressive editorial platform and brand that now can flex in a lot of different ways and is having a lot of opportunities start to present itself because of that that commitment to just working the mission, right? On the flip side, we do do, I have a certain segment of my team, a small segment that works on much more traditional branded content stuff for the Dollar Shave Club universe that you would never even necessarily know that the Mel team was behind. So, I mean, we do give value back to the business in that regard. Um, And, you know, uh, there are ways potentially in the future that this will be brought together in a in a in a way that's a little bit more forward facing, um, but there may not be. And I think again, the prevailing notion was we just want. So it's to do- okay if if the if most of the Mel readers don't even know that it's part of the Dollar Shave Club. Well, one, I think journalistically, we've never wanted to hide that fact, right? I mean, we wanted to earn our way into that market. So I mean, we've never hidden the fact that that's the case. I think we've never been tasked with all the stuff that you're talking about, right? I, are there soft benefits to Dollar Shave Club? The fact that we've created something that's become a bit of a thought leader on masculinity? Yeah, I think absolutely. Is you know, But again, the, the core edict was go out there and try to do great work and we'll figure out how this can work back toward the brand. Okay, so um, for those who are not regular Mel readers, I'm just going to go through some of the latest stories. Yeah, it's um, all coronavirus, so. Okay, yeah, yeah we're, we'll get into the coronavirus, but yeah. I think you're, everyone has to find their own lens to it, I mean, us included. Um, we've got the most terrifying part of gun panic buying isn't the weaponry. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest movie in America during the 1918 <laughs> flu pandemic mm-hmm. is worth is more worth watching than ever. Toilet paper fails your butt. Is it time to rethink tissue for your nose? What's in Mucinex? And can it help me with the coronavirus? The sticky economics of porn theaters. And finally, my toddler just ate my weed. What now? <laughs> right. Well, very important um, as, as we're all quarantined. That's a very important yeah, question. Yeah, exactly. So explain like you know what what is the mel lens because i mean it can go in a lot of different directions i mean you do you guys do weed content you, you'll do porn content but you'll also do um you know a lot of like you said the mental health content i mean there's there's a lead story on here about uh fighting south korea's uh, suicide crisis with fake funerals um, very interesting yeah, so I think, you know, the, the lens is, again, what are, what's the stuff that's fundamental to guys' lives? 
And, you know, for me, that is mental and physical health. That's sort of job and money stuff. That's but you sec- don't do abs. You don't you don't do abs content. Uh, no, not not even. I mean, we've done stuff like um, we look at things much more intellectually. Like when did the six pack become like the gold standard? You know, and it dated back to the late seventies, early eighties. If you even look at like the superhero bodies, you know, we try to be really intellectually curious about everything. Well, being like one of my favorite pieces along this line is like. Uh, the evolutionary psychology of a boob guy, butt guy, and um, leg guy, you know? And so I think we take a lot of things that other places think about, talk about, and we just try to put a different kind of lens on it, which is a more social science slash, um, again, kind of like an intellectual, uh, historical, cultural look at how these things yeah. became the way they were. Um you know, I think sex and porn are very important to guys' lives. I don't think it's in the Esquire model of like, oh, it's Jennifer Aniston I'm lusting after. Most guys are lusting after the the women that are their partners or that they're dating and they want to have more fulfilling, you know, sex lives with them. I think relationships are super important to what we cover. And that's when I talk about work content. I see the people I work with more than I see my family. Um, and I think not you know, anymore. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. Thank God. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I think looking at those relationships is, is super important. Um, I definitely think we try to take a very irreverent twist on a lot of stuff on other things. I mean, I, I'm really proud of the Me Too coverage we've done over the last few years. I mean, we have covered that unlike any other publication out there. Alana Hope Levinson, who's our deputy editor, she wrote a huge feature at the end of 2017 about what it was like to be a woman to work at a men's publication during Me Too. And those were very, we have a morning writer's room and those meetings, we had about, we have about half staff women and those meetings were very tense. Uh, The guys didn't really know what to say. Uh, I was a little paralyzed in the first couple days. I didn't know how I wanted to talk about it. Then I got maybe too curious about it and we started doing, (laughs) you know, everything under the sun that I could think of. Um, So, I mean, we try to, I don't know. We try to, I I look for the stuff that I think is germane or fundamental to people's lives and try to explain it to them in a really compelling, sometimes very serious, sometimes very irreverent manner to help them understand, you know, why they're thinking about these things or why their brain might work this way or why they're seeing these things in the world. So explain a little bit more, um, the challenge that Me Too presented, or I mean, it, it, I guess it was probably an inflection point for you guys and accelerated. Yeah, I would say um, th- so again. Know, what you're after. Yeah, starting with that kind of quaint notion, I think Trump was the first time people started calling us, uh, where they were like, I think it was cute that here's this men's publication trying to do something different. And then I think once Trump was elected, it became what the fuck is going on with men? And I say this a lot. I think you can look at constituencies, cohorts, and you can pretty much immediately tell if they're pro or anti-Trump. And men are, I think, in the midst of this grand civil war where it's sort of 50-50 down the middle and you have 50% of men who I think want to participate in the social change, um, maybe don't know how to, maybe are scared to with cancel culture and worried if they say or do the wrong thing, that they're never going to work again, that they'll never whatever again. And then on the other side, you have sort of the, the incel men's rights not even just that, I think a lot of quiet Trump supporters in the sense of they believe in this kind of blustery masculinity, you know, where, you know, God damn it, you know, we're going to walk the walk on this, blah, 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 blah. And um, I, so I think that was the first inflection point. And then Me Too definitely was. But, but let, me, let me just jump in there. 
that that isn't like an is that an age divide or no? I mean, I, uh, no, I think that's that's a sense that's a divide. sensibility divide. I think that's a total I mean, sensibility we, divide. Yeah, okay. So I mean, we certainly see with like you know the the incels and and whatnot um, that there there is a cohort of the of the I hate cohort. There there is yeah, a group yeah. of of younger of younger men who who latch on to this, and there's obviously a disaffect. Yeah, I mean, you've got a four chan, eight chan. I mean, all that crowd is pretty, you know, Reddit parts of Reddit. But they're not the Mel. They're not the Mel reader. Like, who is the Mel reader to you? Like, when you think, I mean, of again, like it's the Mel. Yeah, I, I think we we go pretty wide. Like, I think twenty four or twenty five to forty four guys starting to ask questions about the serious stuff in their life, starting to understand they're getting older, starting to understand that there are things they need to care about that they've never cared about before. Um, the guy really trying to, maybe not the quote unquote male ally in an identity kind of sense, but somebody who really wants to leave the world in a better place, who believes in kind of some of the change that's happening here, maybe doesn't know exactly again how to participate in it. That to me is the male guy. The guy who's just trying to find some firm, you know, so, so his place in, ha- in this kind of very, as you, again, you pointed out, fraught world. Okay, so it's sort of straddling the two. It's not necessarily the 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 guy who immediately grabbed the pink pussy hat. Or, or, and No, I think we've learned from incel. me too that that guy ultimately is maybe as much of a bad guy as the incel. Yeah. Usually covering up something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what, when you ask about <laughs> Me Too coverage, I think, you know, I think that's where we've been kind of the best is I think, I love when people tweet at us that I've never feel more seen when I read your site. And, you know, I was trying in the early days to drag out a conversations of men that I knew they were having because they were having them with me privately, but didn't want to say it publicly. And I felt that that was very important that if we wanted to have any kind of voice in where the world was going, we needed to have these conversations. I've kind of pivoted post Harvey Weinstein. And now I feel like more than ever, men need to sort of like get together and talk this out a little bit and try to figure out how we're going to put this back together. Because I think even some of the Weinstein stuff was shocking to me and it's not, you know, I've been around the block a little bit. Uh, But some of that stuff was, I just couldn't even kind of wrap my mind around. So, you know, now I think it's really important for men to kind of start figuring out together from all walks of life, like how are we going to be better stewards of the world? Mm-hmm. But also in like a, a fraught environment, right? I mean, I think, you know, there's probably a lot of men that, that sort of feel that, that, that a lot of the reaction, it's like, oh, white men, white men. And you, you hear it a lot. It's like actually like said publicly, like white men are the worst. I mean, uh, and I wonder like, how do you think that impacts, obviously there's like a backlash to that. I think it probably drives some of the backlash. No, it drives but all how does the that, backlash. How does that it, but how does that impact the like overall psyche of just like, you know, a normal guy who's trying to figure out his place in the world? One, I don't want to be like boohoo poor guys, you know, because uh, I don't I don't believe that. Uh, I do think that the way the most constructive way to handle that, and Miles Klee, who's kind of my brilliant uh, staff writer, kind of take guy. We talked about this a lot with the Kavanaugh hearings of. You know, the biggest problem with some of these guys is they just don't want to interrogate their privilege a little bit. And I think if you can mm-hmm. thoughtfully look at what has helped you get where you are, thoughtfully look at how could you use that to help others who maybe didn't have the same advantages, I think that that 
is a much more constructive way to look at how you could potentially navigate this world and just have a little bit of a thicker skin about, yeah, so what if people say certain things like you're talking about? Like, why is that so bothersome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so w- ex- explain, like, what is your sort of the quintessential Mel story? Like, I mean, like, g- give me an example of one that you think, like, sort of shows all the things we're talking about in action. Um, well, one of my, this is one of the er- early ones we did. C. Brian Smith, who's our great features writer, found a male masturbation coach in Palm Springs. And what I like about this is it could have been a very tawdry. Man, capitalism. There's yeah. like really so a lot of avenues to make money. Of course, it's like, let's go do this. But I didn't want to just be this gonzo kind of tawdry piece. We wanted to think about it you know, much more deeply and like, well, what is even the, to your point about capitalism, what is driving the demand for this, right? (laughs) And what's really interesting is men, uh, women have been going to masturbation coaches for decades, right? But why are they going? They're going to find this elusive orgasm where men (laughs) are trying to get into edging and make it prolong longer or make prolong things. So to me, it became this fascinating piece about, uh, sort of human sexuality, the way, uh, w- the way both genders have, have been evolving in terms of their own sexuality. And it became this 5,000-word piece, not just about going to a masturbation coach, but about sort of the, the way people communicate. I don't know. It was just this gorgeous um, – I love when we can do stuff like that, which is taking something that is maybe on the surface lowbrow and elevating it in a way that you would never – expect sort of the outcome to be or realize that, um, you know, realize that there's something meaningful out of, again, a a topic that seemingly seems so not meaningful. Right. Um, So one of the the things of the early days, you were one of the original Medium publications. Mm -hmm. um, And obviously Medium changed quite a bit. Um, uh, Explain that sort of decision and what you guys sort of took away from it. Obviously, you know, again, like there was a group of publishers that went in on Medium and Medium has changed many different times. Um, But I understand not wanting to deal with all the platform pieces, but explain what the thinking was there and what you took away. So, I mean, to go back to give you a second Kinja reference, I mean, we were very successful taking the Playboy model, working with Tommy Craggs and, and, utilizing a third party audience to rebuild a brand, right? It was, it was nice to go. We were doing 10 things a week and we were close to 2 million uniques, you know, just basically sharecropping. And I thought that that was a kind of interesting model as an incubator for a new brand, you know, somewhere that had a built-in audience that you could introduce the brand to them. And when we went on, obviously with Medium, it was with the ringer and everybody else. And it seemed again, like a compelling case at least for the first 12 or 18 months to incubate something, to introduce it to a world where there were already, you know, I forget what they said at the time, maybe 30 million uniques. And, you know, it seemed like a, a better bet than trying to strike out on your own necessarily. Right. We did do pretty well. We built up to 3 million there. I think just the limitations of that platform, I don't think they ever understood how, that 30 million, 60 million audience, whatever they used to say it was could really benefit everybody. You know, there was no real cross-posting. There was no real... Um, yeah. It was it was a frustrating experience at the end, I think. Yeah. Uh, that said... They were iterating with other people's businesses and publications. Yeah, 100%. Too, is, 
total Silicon Valley thing. To but do. they also they also helped us in the sense that like getting back to the quality of it, it allowed us not to have to worry about. And this is why I, I would start the consulting firm to tell brands no. It allowed us not to have to worry about technology. It allowed us not to have to worry necessarily yeah. about product. We could just focus on honing the the editorial. And I think that was beneficial in the early days. Yes, there was a lot of value of their installed audience base. There was a lot of value in just the SEO with just the sheer volume of pages that they had. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, we, you know, we outgrew that. Yeah. So a final thing is we have to, we have to talk coronavirus. Um, how, how is this changing your, your, um, your content? I mean, in some ways, like, I feel like there's, this is going to become, go from a topic to like just the, the, the norm. I mean, it's going to be lurking for every single story. So I'm not sure how you're thinking about it, um, as whether, you know, Mel is a respite from all of this. Like, it's like you turn on Twitter, you put on Twitter or the news and you're like, oh my God, I'm going back to bed. Not not right now, uh, not a respite. I, there's no way to be a respite right now. We do a couple pieces of counter-programming every day, which have generally worked, honestly. Mm-hmm. We, um, I think I have a very neurotic staff. <laughs> wait, wait, let me ask you this. What What is your sort of, what's your counter-programming? I, I always tell our team we need to find our Italian singing on the balcony yeah. um, content. So we have a piece later today that I love running about cancel culture and celebrity sandwiches. So we found a couple delis that still have a Bill Cosby or Woody Allen and sort of okay. looking at why they haven't canceled those sandwiches. Something that's completely different. Um, we've leaned into some of the, um, yeah, just stuff that's like kind of whimsical uh, kind of makes you laugh. We do this as sort of our midday read at this point. Um, you know, something that's just kind of, I don't know. I don't know if anybody can get away. Um, if anybody can get away from this, you know, so, uh, you know, just trying to give them a palate cleanser in the middle of the day. The rest of the stuff we're trying to do is the approach we always take, which is we're curious about a lot of this stuff. We're neurotic about a lot of this stuff. We're taking sort of a Larry David, you know, one of the things we have coming up is can you take your temperature with a thermopen uh, that you, you know, cook, <laughs> that you measure your the chicken temperature with if you don't have a thermometer at home. Um, we are very curious about like- Is that what, also a no? Uh, yeah, it is a no. Well, I mean, there's no way, okay. the, the body is, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But- uh, you know, I, I was at the grocery store the other day or getting, picking up some stuff and the guy told me nobody's buying produce because they don't want to touch it. They think coronavirus lives on there. So I took that. We made that a new article that did really well. Um, you know, we were great at finding cult. We, we interviewed the rapper who did the first coronavirus rap yesterday. I mean, we find our own cultural puts. Yeah. I love, we talked to the guys who bought the Charmin Forever role last week and like, do they feel yeah. vindicated finally? You know? Well, I mean, it would seem like, I mean, it's more quarantine culture in some ways would seem like a, a, a good avenue to go down because this is changing so many things with, with how, we, how we live. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think you're exactly right. And, and, you know, we've seen a huge uptick in our entertainment coverage. One, we've done a lot more of it. We've, it's, it's overperforming compared to how it normally does, just kind of fun ways to get through you know, this with, you know, what things to binge on, what, what is out there. Um, but I think we're trying to take, if anything, the site has kind of transformed a little bit more into a little bit of a more of a news site than we've ever been before. Um, but still with our magazine mentality um, and still our lens, I just think right now everything is, ha- there's just so much happening. Um, it's hard not to want to, to do it all. Right. 
Exactly. Okay. Well, Josh, thank you so much for uh, joining us from from isolation. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 